Hello, everyone. You're listening to How's the Climate, a new Richmond Hill-based podcast focused on bringing climate awareness and education to Richmond Hill residents. I'm Emiko, and today I will be speaking with Ms. Esther Collier, a Toronto District School Board teacher who is heavily involved with various environmental groups in Richmond Hill and Toronto, a member of the TDSB Environmental Sustainability Council, and also a recipient of the 2018 Toronto Urban Heroes Award. Hello, Ms. Collier. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm wondering if you might be able to introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit about your experience with climate action. So I've been teaching in the TDSB for a long time, over 30 years, since 1989. And before that, I lived in the Philippines where I was born and I spent most of my youth. Uh, quite a bit quite a bit of that youth was spent uh, near or linked to a jungle and the jungle was very untainted when I was uh, very young. Um, and that kind of has impacted my life, I think. Uh, I studied science in university before I got my teaching degree. I really love teaching. I especially love that aha moment when kids grasp a concept and see, I see it on their faces. And I also really enjoy problem solving. And so when there's big problems, I put a I put a lot of time trying to think about what's the way forward. I firmly believe that there's always a way forward. And sometimes we have to go back far enough till we find that first step. And then that first step can lead to big things. Uh, my passion about the climate crisis began probably, I often link it to this moment that is sort of seared into my brain when I looked at a, a poster which showed the population growth graph. And uh, I was shocked at that hockey stick graph that we often link with climate change too. But this was just with population where since the uh, late 1800s, the population has just exponentially increased globally. And it was obvious to me that this was not sustainable. And um, I really began to think of the fact that we can't live on one planet with this endless growth. And so I began to notice all the places where people were really impacting the planet. And I had now, by that time, I had already seen that beautiful jungle on the island of Mindoro in the Philippines be destroyed. And um, those lovely, incredible trees were now gone. And there was just this uh, very uh, rough Kogan grass. It was very tall and about my height, but very destructive. And so um, I was really aware of the destruction of life can, that can be caused by humans. So I began to really notice those things. Um, I first heard about the climate crisis, but didn't really think about it. I think I was really focusing on biodiversity loss and uh, species and habitat loss at the time and thought, you know, what can humans do? We can't really change the climate. The same thing that I think many people have thought. And then um, in like the early uh, uh, turn of the century, I started doing some math and thinking about it. And I compared uh, the amount of time that the fossil fuels had been being formed on our planet. So um, since the plant um, period, when there were so many huge trees that were being buried, and this was about 300 million years ago. And since then plants had been turned into fossil fuels on the planet. And I thought 300 million years, like that's a number that's too big. I can't really comprehend it. And I realized that, you know, we discovered the coal and oil and these resources maybe, you know, in 500 years. So I started comparing 300 million years to 500 years thinking we're going to we're going to burn all of that carbon into carbon dioxide. And when I when I started making a visual representation of that, I was able to see that this is like 100 meters of walking to the width of a human hair. And 
I would have the kids just walk out a hundred meters and then I would have them hold a hair and, you know, put it on that line. And just, it really struck me that we were taking all of that masses of carbon and we're putting it into our atmosphere um, in such a tiny short time that there's no way we can process this. And this is when I really started to see how humans could have a, a dramatic effect on, on the planet. And so since then, especially I was off for the year, uh, 2018, 19 and, I, I do a sabbatical that year and I was in Richmond Hill and I started really thinking, um, noticing the lack of community engagement on the crisis and started doing my problem solving to figure out what can we do to bring communities and the public into actually caring about this issue. And uh, we decided to, I decided to work in Richmond Hill and in Toronto. Richmond Hill is where I live and Toronto is where I work. So I've been working on that since. Wow. And you have such an incredible story and thank you for sharing. So going back to your youth, which you spent in the Philippines in this beautiful jungle that's unfortunately since been destroyed, would you say that there's a disconnect for those of us who have, let's say, lived in Richmond Hill our entire life and haven't really seen that destruction firsthand? Um, one of the, the things is that I was always in, in connected and, and touching and, and seeing the diversity of life around me. Um, I vividly remember watching a, ma uh, a wasp make a mud nest on my windowsill and, you know, just it would fly away and come back with a little bit of mud and put it in and it would make like a little igloo shape on my windowsill and, you know, where it would go in. And it was fascinating to me. And the thing that we don't understand because we're so used to just our lawns with maybe five or six species on it. When you're in the jungle, every square meter is like, packed with thousands of species of life of such diversity they're all interesting shapes and sizes and colors and uh, smells and and it is a it's like a video like that's all around us and i think that we're so it's so empty in our uh, where we are now even when we go in a forest the number of species in our forests are so small because we only have these little pockets and only certain species have been there and the invasive species come in and kind of overtake and uh it's we're, we're very very short of understanding um also every tree that you see is a baby tree like the baby the trees we see are at the most teenagers the biggest trees we see are like teenagers and uh we don't understand how big the trees were here in southern ontario uh, when they grew to their full size they were the size of a car like around their their diameter um and we we think we're seeing an adult tree but we're seeing baby trees like uh, we haven't ex been exposed to what the canopy was here in in the, where the city of toronto is and you can go back and look at old pictures of the stumps that were left when they cut all these trees down in the early 1900s and um you know, we have so far to go, like to get back to that incredible, rich diversity of life. Absolutely. And it's so interesting to think about because it almost seems like a vicious cycle. You know, we get rid of these species and then we no longer have that beauty and the, that diversity, which would really encourage us to keep them. Uh, so going back to you were talking earlier about this aha moment, and I know that you have a history in climate climate change education. So I'm wondering how you introduce climate change in the classroom and how you encourage your students to have that same aha moment when it comes to climate change. 
I like I really like to to help students understand sort of uh, in by picture what's happening. One thing that I often talk about is that we sort of have levels of problems, like we have the light coming into the planet. I really, really like the kids to understand how I'm thinking of this question having a couple of sections to it. So how climate change is done generally and then how I do it. So I'm really focusing on how I do it. And um, I really like to help the kids understand the concept of energy and how light energy is stronger than heat energy and it's more powerful. And so when the energy comes from the sun, it's very strong and it's able to get through our atmosphere to the planet as light energy. But when it hits a surface, most of the times that energy is, is loses its energy and turns into heat. So it's still the same electromagnetic spectrum, but its power has been lost. Like the, the energy contained in those, that light is lost. And so heat energy being weaker can't make it back out through the atmosphere. And this is why our heat is getting trapped here. And so we have choices, like we have three choices and I always sort of show them these choices. We can, we can keep the light as light, so there's places in the world where they are painting the streets white because white reflects light back and doesn't change it to heat. And so by painting the streets white or the tops of buildings white, we are reflecting that light back as light energy. Now it can make it back out and leaves the planet again. Um, and we can keep our surfaces, surfaces that are reflective and don't the black pavement and tar. This stuff is super good at, at absorbing the light energy and radiating it as heat. So we want to get rid of those black surfaces. So that's one thing to do. Keep the light as light. The second thing we can do is we can um, decrease the amount of greenhouse gases in the air that are trapping it so that we can make our atmosphere more porous so more heat can get out. out. And that's what most people talk about with the climate crisis is how can we do reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. And so that is um, uh, another thing that we can do. Um, stop making the blanket that's trapping it. But the third thing is to, to um, change that it back into carbon. So take that carbon dioxide out of the air and, trans and change it back into carbon to get it out of the atmosphere too, which is the planting trees um, idea. So produce less, but also we can have the more of the things that can com convert the carbon dioxide back into carbon. And uh, so it's all this carbon in the ground that we are then converting into carbon dioxide in the air or to um, other products that are in the air. That's the problem. Uh, so and, and this is where you start going kind of crazy and insane because the big thing is we want to have the carbon in the ground as carbon where it was for two, 300 million years. And then when they take the oil out, we're like, no, don't take it out, leave it in there. Cause otherwise I have to put it back in. Like it's already there, let's just leave it there and then go and find other ways to make energy because there's so many scientific other ways that we can make energy without having to take that carbon out and turn it into carbon dioxide and then have the trouble of trying to put it back. So, um, you know, it's kind of the thing we think about. And I understand there's a lot of economic issues and crises. And then the second part of the question is maybe how is climate change education done within the school system? And I'll tell you that it is in the curriculum. It's, it's present in, in you know, geography, it's present in science, it's, it's there. But I don't think that the staff are well-trained on how to teach it. A lot of them don't really understand sort of how it works, so it's hard to teach it properly. There's also a lot of science and, and evidence being done on how our human brains work. We have a real difficulty 
understanding a concept that is far from us in space and time. So the climate crisis is often happening in places where, which are far away from us, but also happening in uh, the time distance. So it's happening to your generation is gonna deal with the consequences, not my generation. So therefore it can be difficult for you, me to say, why do I worry about that? I, what's much more present to me is I can't pay my bill right tomorrow, right? To eat or to have a house over my head. So that's what I'm going to worry about. And, and this is, this is the problem is, is not being able to see the consequences. So we, we think a lot about how can we, how can we help people become a part of it currently? And um, understanding that meant that um, we started to think about how can we um, make it part of the daily conversation? So when, when I first started thinking about this in 2018, there were studies coming from US where just every year they were evaluating how many times in the news are people talking about the climate crisis. And there's some really interesting data and it was like never or hardly ever was it being in the news. And so, you know, by getting the news to talk about it more, it becomes something that is in our psyche more. And um, when I was hearing that, I thought, well, I went to a Thanksgiving dinner with my family and here we ate this wonderful meal. And then not once did we talk about the climate crisis and yet I'm in science and my son is in science and my husband is in science. So every day we're thinking about it. We're very aware that this crisis is huge and it's gonna really destroy. My son's like, well, I can't get married and I can't have kids because what's the point? There's not gonna be a planet for them. And he's like, you know, ready to write it off. And I like, here's the end of the world, you know, coming. Every scientist is telling me this. And I go and we just eat turkey dinner and act like nothing's wrong. Like, it just seems so wrong to me. So I called my family, said, we're all going to meet again. But this time we're going to talk about the climate crisis and what we're going to do about it, because this is an emergency and we have to do something about it. So um, it was interesting because Canada declared a climate emergency after I called that meeting. And then we we met uh, after that. And so then it was really powerful to just get the family together and say, okay, it's a crisis. What are we going to do? And at that point, we decided as a family, you know, each of us is going to go to our workplaces and our places of worship and like our communities, our friends, and we're going to make sure they talk about it. And we're going to push them to make a plan on what they're going to do. So I'm going to do it with my family, but I'm going to have other people do it with their communities. And um, so out of that, then I said, well, I live in Richmond Hill, so I need to go and make Richmond Hill do a plan. And that's when I started reaching out to the people in Richmond Hill and found the drawdown community that was already there and was connected to them. And I, I said, I have to gather the community together. And so I decided to have a community networking meeting and advertised and promoted it. And we had like 80 people show up and we had all three levels of government, the member of parliament, the member of provincial parliament and the mayor and the councillors came to this meeting. So it really became a big splash in the community. And we didn't just hold one. I, I said, we're going to hold another one a month later. And it was the fact that this community was getting together regularly. And a huge thing that happened when we met is that the people who were alone in their space panicking were suddenly connected with the other people who were alone in their space panicking. And instead of feeling panicky, we suddenly saw that we're not alone and we started to network. Okay, I'm going to do this. You do that. She's going to make a website and she's going to hold community meetings. She's going to get the scientists together and do some math and figure out what Richmond Hill should be doing. So we're going to pull all these pieces together, but now we're network and we're using our resources together rather than one person thinking it's hopeless. I can't change it on my own. That was so big that Richmond Hill 
now has a very active climate community. But I think if I never had that first meeting to call them together, I don't think we would be in that place. So this is my passion right now is to get the high schools up running these meetings regularly. And that's, that's what, like any spare time I have is spent on doing that in Richmond Hill and in Toronto. You know, your work is so inspiring and it's crazy to think of the impact, even that first meeting with your family had when you think about the ripple effect. Um, And it just goes to show that a handful of people can make such a huge difference and really make a, a big impact. And imagine if you call a meeting with your family and then you, you made a mandate that each of us will go, you'll go to your school and you'll make your principal call a climate emergency and you'll make your principal plan. And then, you know, your mom will go to her place of work and make a, you know, her boss and do a climate emergency plan for her work. And imagine if your plan in your school is to tell every kid in your school that they have to go get their family together and get their family to go and do it in their places of work. Look at the spread factor. And you know, it seems like such a massive and overwhelming issue, but you start small and you start with your family or whatever your inner community looks like, and you can really make a huge impact. There's this lovely visual of um, like a a teeter-totter seesaw and, you know, it looks impossible to move the other end down. But if you just get enough people further along, then the whole thing suddenly tips. And, uh, you know, some there's a 3% project. I don't know if you know the 3% project is another organization that I had some connection with. So in the 3% project... This young man, Steve, he um, he read somewhere that uh, you only need 3% of the population to agree on an issue. It changes the whole issue. So he decided to go to all the high schools, as many high schools as he could in Canada, and to teach about them about the climate crisis and just to try to get 3% of them. And then he can make the climate crisis become big. And so he's traveled all around Canada talking about the climate crisis out of that goal. Such a tiny percentage, right? Yes, really tiny. Um, And when you think about Richmond Hill, I mean, 3% of Richmond Hill seems like such a reasonable number of people to, to try to get on board about this. So to end off our episode, I'm wondering if we could have three big takeaway points. So if you could tell all the uh, listeners at home and also myself, the three biggest action items, what would those be? I would, I would really suggest you call your family together and you, you say like Canada's declaring a climate emergency, Toronto's declared a climate emergency, R- R- Richmond Hill has, you know, is about to declare a climate emergency and uh, they're talking about it. They're creating a resilient Richmond Hill. So um, the big thing to do is to call your family together and say, if it's an emergency, what are we doing? Let's make a plan and, and may, make sure that part of your plan is to go to your places of work and get them to make a plan, plan to reduce their energy use. I mean, Canada today in the news, the federal government is making it a law that by 2050, we'll, we will be net zero. And so they're, they're making five-year increments of laws of how they're going to get to that place. So what in your place of work, what would it look like to go to net zero and begin to establish the steps that you're going to need to do to get to net zero by 2050. So that's one thing is meeting together, talking together, communicating. 
A second thing that is, there is so much power in a leader calling people to action. It, it really costs nothing. Just for, imagine the, the principal of your school going on to the parents and sending a notice home and saying, we know we're in a climate emergency. We're just asking our community to please do whatever they can to get their families and homes to net zero. That is incredibly powerful. And people follow, they follow like, we're, we're very much like sheep. Give us a shepherd telling us what to do. We'll all follow along. You know, get your leader to do those things. And then gather your community together. So that networking power. So it's it's not really that hard. This is what I want to say to high school students. Pick a date. You already have the virtual link. You already have the high school. Throw an email out to everybody and all the parents in your community and say, on this date, we're having a virtual meeting. This is the Zoom link for it. Please come and talk about the climate crisis. And yeah. just see who shows you're, you're, the only problem thing that's blocking it is nobody's planning the meeting. So go out there, plan the meeting and invite your member of parliament, your member of provincial parliament, your town councillor, and uh, get some of your drawdown, you know, your climate action groups in the community to come too, because they, they're the experts. They're dying for an audience. So they're very happy to come. So send it to your community and bring those experts in and make sure the community has voice. Don't let the politicians speak the whole time. <laughs> let the community ask the questions and get answers and figure out how they as a community are. What do they need in the community? What resources do they have? Can anyone help solve those resources? And, and then let your community fix their own problems about the climate crisis. That's what I'm trying to do in Richmond Hill and in Willowdale is to access these community resources that are already there. Right. And we have just got to reach out and grab them. Okay, everyone. So those are our action items. We are going to call on our families. We're going to call on our leaders and we are going to start having those conversations. Ms. Collier, thank you so, so much for being here and speaking with me today. Um, you are so inspirational and the work that you're doing with regards to climate change education is just really incredible. As for all of you listening at home, thanks for uh, tuning into this episode of How's the Climate? And we'll see you here next week for another fantastic guest and another really interesting conversation about climate change. This podcast is brought to you by Making Waves, a Canadian youth team based in the GTA focused on bringing climate education to Richmond Hill. We are participating in Youth Challenge International's Innovate My Future program and are supported by Evergreen Canada and Resilient Richmond Hill. Thanks to Matthew Wong for today's content and Joshua Chang for our music. Our team includes Romina Murtash, Olivia Karp, Matthew Wong, Lucy Mao, and me, Emiko Wajesundra. Catch you next time here on How's the Climate.